I don't think of things as barriers. I think that you have to see things as opportunities, and sometimes opportunities don't come wrapped up in a bow saying, hey, I'm an opportunity. I think it's about, are you going to have time for this? Is this interesting to you? Are you going to learn from it? And have you got something to contribute? Hi, and welcome to the New Rules of Business by Chief. I'm Carolyn Childers. I'm Lindsay Kaplan, and we're the co-founders of Chief, the network of the most powerful women in business. Each episode, we take on a complex, thought-provoking leadership question. And for the last episode of the season, we thought it would be fitting to answer one question a lot of C-suiters could be asking themselves. What comes next? So you mean like season three of this podcast? (laughs) Okay. For real, for those who feel like they've climbed to the peak of their career and maybe want to make a pivot, you could be pursuing something called a portfolio career. It's a way to pick and choose different passion projects and have multiple streams of income instead of that traditional nine to five in the office. And lately, since the great resignation, a lot more people, both entry-level executives alike, are reinventing what a career can actually mean and look like. But to start a portfolio career as your second or third act, there's a little bit of soul searching that needs to happen. What exactly do you want to pursue? What can your experience apply to? Do you have the right connections? And these were some of the questions we had for today's guest. Someone who is the epitome of living a portfolio lifestyle, the one and only Joanna Coles. Joanna was arguably one of the most influential magazine editors of our time. She was the editor-in-chief at Marie Claire in Cosmopolitan and became the first chief content officer at Hearst. And now, Joanna has successfully transitioned into a portfolio career as the executive producer of TV shows, a board member of companies ranging from Snapchat to Bark, and the CEO of a SPAC called Northern Star Acquisition. Thank you for joining us, Joanna. Hi, I'm happy to be here. I'm not quite sure where here is. I guess we're in the virtual space, right? (laughs) It is the first version of the metaverse that we're in right now, I guess. (laughs) Someone called me yesterday and said, had I heard of Web5? And I was like, oh, God, no, absolutely haven't heard of Web5. We're on Web7 over here. Uh, (laughs) We're in end stage web. There you go. Well, we are super excited to have you join us today. And I think one of the things that we were really excited to talk about is that you have managed to achieve this phase in your career that so many strive for. It's what you call your portfolio career and working on projects that you get to define and the things that excite you versus working in kind of a dedicated one company, nine to five, if that even exists anymore. But before we dive into how you got there, we'd love to kind of take a step back and hear a little bit more about the beginnings of your career as a magazine editor and what it took to break into the C-suite. The movie trailer of your life. (laughs) The movie trailer of my life. It's a small independent movie, by the way, that's only showing in selected cinemas near you. I often think that people's childhoods hold clues to what they love. And my childhood was literally spent creating magazines for my neighbors. And 
making dolls clothes for my dolls and my trolls, actually. And so oddly, therein, you have encapsulated what I went on to do, which was become a journalist and then run fashion magazines, which I absolutely loved. I started writing a column for the Yorkshire Post when I was 10. It wasn't a regular column, but they paid me £2 a week, which made me realise I could earn money from writing, which seemed really fun. And I'm always fascinated by how people talk about their careers as if they never had to earn money because I had to earn money. I had great parents, but I didn't have any financial support. So it was very clear to me in the moment I left college that I had to earn a living. And I couldn't think of a better way than doing it than than writing and journalism, which is what I did for my first career. And I was a news journalist in the UK on Fleet Street, which was a very good place to start because it was extremely competitive and very male-dominated. So I started as a journalist. I got posted to America for The Guardian as their bureau chief. And then from there, when I had two children, I moved into magazines, stupidly thinking that it would be easier because I would be able to control my own schedule, which is really what you want, I think, when you have kids. And now, happily, post-COVID, it's one of the great things, I think, to happen, despite the fact that tons of women, unfortunately, left the workplace. I think 1.8 million women left the office workplace because they just couldn't handle all the pressures of COVID and having to homeschool kids. But having a bit more control over your own schedule is, I think, hugely important when you have children. That's why I left news reporting to go into magazines, but turned out I loved magazines and I'd forgotten a bit about having spent my childhood making them and it all came flooding back and it was really a great fun opportunity. So can you talk a little bit about your time at Hearst? So you were chief content officer and then you decided to step down and that was kind of the transition point out of maybe traditional media into this next phase. Would love to just hear a little bit about what was going through your mind as you were starting to map out what that next phase would really be. Sure. I had a wonderful time at Hearst. I edited Marie Claire, I edited Cosmopolitan, then I was in charge of all editorial globally, which was enormous fun, actually. But I'd been at the company 12 years. My kids were reaching a point where they were going to leave home. And I increasingly felt a lot of opportunity I wasn't able to take up because obviously I had a full-time job at first. And then the leadership at first of the magazine division changed, and I felt like this was a good opportunity for me to move. I didn't love the guy that they had put in place. And in fact, two years later, he was me tooed in a series of articles in the New York Times, which didn't entirely surprise me because he was not someone that I really wanted to work with, which partly contributed to the decision to leave, but really the decision to leave was based on the fact I had a book, I joined the board of Snapchat, and I was looking for new things to do. And I'd gotten more involved in the bold type. And I was excited to try new things. And I had a wonderful time there, but I was there for 12 years and it felt like a good time to move on. And you mentioned you produced the bold type. And I know you're currently working with John Legend's company, Get Lifted. And you also sold a drama to Amazon with Priyanka Chopra. So you have a lot going on. How did this all come about? How did you move from magazines into TV production? Well, content is content, right? And a good idea is a good idea. What you need then is the follow through to make the idea happen. 
And when I was at Hearst, I had the opportunity to work actually on four television shows. And then the bold type grew out of actually a series of conversations I had with the producer, Dave Bernard, who went on to do White Lotus, actually, rather brilliantly, and was based on a ton of stuff around Cosmo. And then a lot of my diaries from when I was much younger, which is why James Thin transformed into James Sloan. And the Melora Hardin character, Jacqueline Carlyle, is loosely based on me. I like to say she's inspired by me. You have great hair. Just for the record, <laughs> she has great hair. <laughs> the office that they built in the bold type was based on my office at Hearst. And they were very respectful of the process of magazine making, which was really fun. So I had lots of experience while I was at Hearst of developing television and actually getting it made. And then I came across an extraordinary character called David Brown, a wonderful chorus master when I was at the Nantucket Project three years ago now. And he'd connected us via a link to sing live with people in an Ohio prison. And it was a wonderfully both joyful and moving experience. And I wanted to turn it into a TV show. So I sold it to ABC with John Legend's company, Get Lifted. We've just shot our pilot for ABC, which will be aired at some point this fall. And we're waiting to hear if it's going to go to series. That's pretty exciting. I'm excited to tune in. I want to take a step back to what you just said about content is content. So you made this move from magazines over into TV production, so many different forms of content. And I'm super curious of what do you think the through theme is of what is the underlying skill that you think anybody that is in the content world really needs to hone to be able to go across any of those mediums? What is the most important success factor? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think it's really about paying attention to what is going on in the world and trying to make sense of it through entertaining stories. I started in print. I went from newspapers to magazines to television to digital with Snapchat. And the through line with all of it is storytelling that moves people and informs them and keeps them engaged. And it's really understanding, I think, human nature and understanding the world we're in and what comforts people, what excites people, what inspires people, but ultimately what moves people. And I think we're moving into a new phase of content. If I thought there were any patterns going on right now, I think that people want to be moved in a really authentic way. And that will be the next wave of content. We've been through a horror phase. We've been through a sci-fi phase. Those will all stay. But I think right now there is an urge for real connection with content that moves people and feels relevant and feels genuine. And feels uplifting. Or is that just one of the areas that you're trying to create content around? I think that emotionally moving content is uplifting. Even if you're sad at the end of it, it's still uplifting because it's satisfying as a story. I mean, not all great stories end well. So you couldn't necessarily call Anna Karenina, for example, uplifting because the heroine commits suicide. And yet it's an incredibly dramatic and interesting and wonderful book. I grew up obsessed by the 19th century novel, but many of those stories are not technically uplifting, but they're all wrestling with the 
um, nature of what it is to be human, what it is to be alive, and this journey that we're all on, which is increasingly complex for people. So it sounds like the transition from magazine media to TV production, because the through line is content, it was natural and it made sense. But I want to dig into your next pivot, which on the surface seems like a bigger jump. And that was starting a SPAC company. And from the outside looking in, this is a big leap. So how did you start going that direction? What got you interested? Well, I think what you have to remember in all careers is you don't do any of this on your own. So when you ask about how did you move from magazines to television, I mean, you're meeting new people all the time. You're developing ideas with people all the time. One of the fun parts of journalism or media is that you get access to all sorts of people and you meet all sorts of people all the time. And you're constantly filtering people and you're constantly searching for new ideas. I remember a friend of mine who worked at the BBC once saying she was a whale sucking up plankton all the time. That's what the job is. And then cumulatively, the plankton keep you sort of nourished. So I didn't just wake up one day and decide, oh, I'm going to do a SPAC. I was introduced to John Ledecky, an extremely experienced SPAC operator, by Stephanie Rule, actually, the broadcaster. And he was looking for a partner who understood the consumer space, which I'm very interested in and have always been interested in. And it felt like a good time to raise a SPAC, which we did. And then we merged with BarkBox, the dog subscription company, which is a dog toy and treat company, soon to launch food. As you've kind of started to do more of these additional projects, whether it's the boards you've taken, the SPAC, how have you decided what makes sense for you to go into? Have you had to define a very clear point of view or have you actually just said, I just want to work with great people that I've met along the way that I think are doing interesting things? Probably a combination of the both. I think if you're looking to invest in a company, you're looking for really smart people, a good management team, a good sized market. And I want to work with people that I think are interesting, have got a great idea, and where I can add value. And sometimes that's in the content space or in the brand space or the strategy space. You know, a couple of times I think I've been added to things because I was a woman and they needed a woman, but sometimes that's okay. You know, you take your opportunities where you can. And largely it's about being interested in the idea and the people. I'm glad you brought up that line around just taking the opportunity because like many industries, a lot of business boards are still dominated by men. So I'm curious if you face some barriers coming into this industry and if you have any opinions on how to get more women into board seats. I don't think of things as barriers. I think that you have to see things as opportunities and sometimes opportunities don't come wrapped up in a bow saying, hey, I'm an opportunity. I think it's about, are you going to have time for this? Is this interesting to you? Are you going to learn from it? And have you got something to contribute? And you join a board for the most part by having expertise in the area that the board is looking for. And The easiest way to think about it is who are the CEOs you know and where are the companies where you think you could add value and then matching that against do they have people that have my skill set on the board? Do they just have one person or do they have three people? I think it's harder for women in finance because often boards are loaded with finance people, although they tend to clear out once a company goes public. So what you're looking for is a company that you may have done 
business with before, where you know the CEO, where you feel comfortable in a conversation, perhaps raising the issue that you would like to be considered as a candidate for the board, and also talking to other board members, because usually boards are always thinking about who else is out there that would be useful if someone on our board moves on. And so making it clear that you're interested and having real conversations about the company and knowing that you can add value and making sure that your work makes sense and your background makes sense for that company. I can't tell you how many people have said to me, oh, I'd love to join the Apple board or I'd like to be on the Disney board. And I just think, well, that's never going to happen because you don't have the background and you're going to be competing against so many other people. It's just not going to happen. It's unrealistic. Whereas there are lots of other companies where they would have equally useful things to contribute. And I get asked all the time by people, how do you join a board? The best way I can recommend is talk to other board members and talk to CEOs that you know of companies that you work with in some kind of adjacency to the company or reach out to CEOs or reach out to board members where you know you have something to contribute to the company, but be realistic about it. And um, and it's time-consuming being on a board, and it's enormous fun when the people are good and the company's interesting. So you're saying I don't have a shot at landing a seat on the board of Apple. <laughs> this is this is what I'm taking away from the conversation. This is other people. This is other people. Oh, okay. Okay, great. Put me on the governance committee. <laughs> oh, God, that would be a disaster. Lindsay on the governance committee. <laughs> so one of the things that in a previous conversation we've had on this podcast, some advice was to think through who would be the person in the C-suite of a company that would call you? What is the value that you're bringing to this company? Is it CEO that's going to call you? The CFO? Who's going to call you? What is the value in the relationship that you build? What have you kind of defined that to be for you? Well, actually, often the most interesting calls come completely unexpectedly from companies that might have been on your radar, but in a peripheral sense. Snapchat I joined because I'd spent a lot of time working with the company and I'd spent a lot of time with Evan Spiegel, the co-founder, and we'd had enormous fun together and we were very effective at, I think, working together. But the call to join the Sonos board, for example, which is a product I'd had in my home for the last 10 years, I love Sonos, came slightly out of the blue because they were looking for someone who had a content background. So, it's very hard to predict. And I think throughout my life, I've often had calls that I wasn't expecting, which have turned out to be among the more interesting calls, partly because you weren't expecting them, and partly because these weren't things that you were thinking about. There's nothing worse than sort of dreaming of something or thinking about something and then it not happening. But the converse of that is someone reaching out unexpectedly and it turning into something. I remember, actually, I had 18 months at Moore magazine. When I was at New York magazine, I got a call to go meet the editor of Moore, and I almost didn't go. And I'm so glad I did, because A, she turned into a great friend. But B, I had 18 months at a women's magazine, which I'd never worked at before, which really prepped me for going to Marie Claire and Cosmo and then Hearst. So you just never know when calls are going to come. And I think it's taking the time to think this could be an opportunity. It could be a call. It's not quite what I was anticipating for myself, but it might be just as useful or possibly more useful. And it's often interesting learning when you get those calls, what people are calling you for and what they think you have that you might not realize you have yourself. I assume people call you 
easily for content and brand. What should somebody also call Joanna Coles for? That's hilarious. Hair. Oh, well, hair, of course. Great hair. (laughs) Advice on how to get on the Apple board, which is you won't. I'm not quite sure. Actually, it's a very good question. You've slightly left me speechless. You know what? I'm done. (laughs) (laughs) So I want to just talk about something that I think is fascinating as a new way of working, which is to look at your career as a portfolio career. It is the concept of ditching the I have this job, this is what I do, and really unfolding different jobs, different experiences into similarly to a portfolio of companies, a portfolio of work. Can you speak to your perspective on that and how you look at your career differently than maybe you did 10, 20 years ago? Sure. Having a portfolio career is very different to having a job. And you have to be pretty disciplined at being able to stay on top of the various things you have in your portfolio. I was a foreign correspondent for four years, which was really actually where I think I learned the skill set to manage a bunch of things and to get up every morning and know that you're in charge of your schedule and that you're the one holding yourself to account. It's great having the freedom of not one job. It's great being able to think about other things. And it's fun to be able to connect the different things you do. The downside is you don't have the same group of people to complain to every day. And I'm doing a portfolio sort of career for now. I don't know if I would go back into a big organization. It would have to be super interesting to do it. And it would also have to have flexibility, which is the real fun of a portfolio career that you can work from wherever in a slightly different way than you can work for a company from wherever. You can always stop doing something if you stop enjoying it or you can move away from it. You can try things and if they don't work, the whole thing isn't imploding. So it's quite a nice way to try different things while not risking everything and not putting all your bets on one horse. I do think, though, that one of the things that interests me about the way women talk about their careers, which I think is worth talking about with Chief because of what you've done, is that what you want to think about, I think, is a life, a really full life. And hopefully that life will include kids. And I worry that a lot of the conversations around women's jobs leave children out or only describe children as this incredible sort of burden and a juggling act. And actually having children is a great joy. And I worry that we've lost the the sense of that and the fun of having kids in the way that we talk about them. And as a culture, we don't really empower women to think about the significance of having a family and how there will inevitably be compromises along the way. And that's fine. It's okay to compromise. When I left news reporting to go into magazines because I had a baby and a a little boy and I wanted to spend time with them. And I thought to myself, goodness, I've spent all my life wanting to be a foreign correspondent, or I had at that point. I finally got to be a foreign correspondent. Now I've got children. I'm going to have to give it up and I'm going to go into a desk job. And the desk job, actually, editing was very hard for me for the first couple of years. I found it really restraining. But once I got good at it and I figured out how to do it, then it really helped me take off in a slightly different direction. And the kids will be your most enduring, probably, relationships in your life. And I worry that younger women in particular don't think about it and don't talk about it enough. Do you feel like there's more that companies need to do generally? 
I would imagine that being a foreign correspondent, they were not too worried about creating a great work environment for parenthood. But I think you have started to see some companies start to put more policies in place that could be more supportive. Are you looking at that and saying like, that's a good step in the right direction that helps this? Or do you think there's so much more to go? Well, there's clearly a ton of opportunity for companies to show up and really support women with children in the workplace and to support lives. And I think one of the great loosening ups of institutional life or office life post-COVID has been the flexibility. I'm not saying that all offices should work remotely, not at all. And I think there's enormous benefit to working with people. But I don't see, for example, why most offices don't just say, you know what, everybody work from home on a Monday. If you look at the data, Monday's the day that most people take off or call in sick because they're exhausted from the weekend. And for the most part, I don't think they're exhausted because they've been drinking all weekend. I think often people are exhausted because they've been running their families all weekend and probably trying to do a bit of extra work on their cell phone or the BlackBerry. And if you're me, you've been running your family and drinking heavily through it. (laughs) Exactly. So you've got the double whammy of it. I mean, I remember all my working mom friends used to go, thank God it's Monday, because going back into the office actually was easier than being at home with the kids. But I think Monday is one of those days that I don't see why it can't be a day where everybody works from home, you get a bit more flexibility, and then everybody shows up in the office on a Tuesday. It's clearly what people want. Have there been moments where new opportunities that you've considered that you have started to venture into and you're like, this is not for me or this isn't going to be successful. How have you navigated some of the challenges that come with just such a wide array that there have to be a few missteps? Yeah, it's a great question. All careers have ups and downs in them. And I've certainly teetered on the brink of things which I thought were going to be more interesting than they were or people that I thought would be more interesting than they turned out to be. There have been a couple of projects that didn't go as I'd hoped. But you have that in a run-of-a-mill job anyway. That's just life. I now see life as a series of obstacles that you have to either climb over the top of or go around the side or bury underneath. So what advice would you have for other people that are thinking about going into more of this portfolio career on their own? Is there any right time to do it at stage of career? Is there any right moment from a macro environment perspective that you think it's a great time for people to think about it? I'm just curious how you would advise people to navigate. Well, I think it's about how people want to navigate their own lives. Do they want to live in one place? Do they want to have a lifestyle where they can actually travel a bit. I've just come back from three weeks in Europe. That was pretty nice. It would have been hard to do that with a job. And also, are you up for whiplash from three back-to-back Zooms with three different companies all dealing with completely different issues? And that can be challenging, actually, but it can also be stimulating and you can also make connections between each of the different businesses. And you can see patterns in different businesses, which can be helpful to people. And I think you have to want to manage, you need someone, I have a very good scheduler, my long term assistant is a brilliant scheduler. So the scheduling is complicated, especially if you're on more than a couple of boards. But once you've got that down, you can build a very nice rhythm, and it gives you flexibility to do other things that you want in your life. You can travel, you can see friends, you can play tennis during the day if you want. There are definitely other ways to use your time. And as you get older, you realize that time becomes this resource that you want to use 
efficiently and to make sure that all your days add up to something. You make it sound lovely. I would love to travel and be able to play tennis and do all of those things. But in some ways, I feel like it's just so much riskier in many ways to go into a portfolio career because your next paycheck or your next thing is more unknown. And so I question whether people can do that until they get to a certain level of financial stability. I'm curious if there's advice you would give on how much stability somebody should have before they take a more financially risky leap? Well, stability is personal. I think for one person, stability might be suffocating. For another person, stability might be absolutely essential. And you're completely right to think about the financial implications of it. I think of it as if you're leveraged across a series of companies, then actually you're less vulnerable than if you've given 100% to one job and they're downsizing. I mean, look at all the numbers of people that have been laid off in the last two or three months, arguably from companies that you would not have thought would be laying off 25% of their workforce. But you can see what's happening in the tech industry where I'm sure people felt very confident and competent six months ago and are now feeling much more uneasy. So I've always thought it's good to have a side hustle that you can lean on, A, for creativity or stimulation, but B, for financial means too. And obviously, you have to be realistic about what you're signing up for and make sure that you've got contracts with people. I'm not suggesting that you would do this in a freelance way and that you go into it very thoughtfully. But If you're able to manage the scheduling and you're able to manage different groups of people and you've got enough experience, it's easier to do because I've got, you know, 35 years of experience at this point and 35 years of connections, which is also really important, much harder to do when you're 25. And I wouldn't advocate it at 25 unless you're prepared to live a freelance life. I guess the difference is that in your 20s and 30s, it's called freelance. And as you get older, it's called portfolio. But if you're joining a board, you're usually joining a board for a certain length of time. You commit to a certain length of time. Otherwise, there's no point in doing it, really. So you're looking for longer term connections and engagements than you are when you're younger. I love that. I definitely wanted a portfolio career at one point and was too afraid to take that leap. But you make it sound like I can get there in 10 years. That is my new 10-year goal. I think you could probably get there in less than 10 years. But what could be more fun than building your own company? Give me 10 years with Chief first. I am a Chief Lifer. I'm so annoyed with myself. We met and I was going to invest just before COVID. And then, you know, I think like everybody, I was extremely nervous about spending money. And I'm so impressed by what you've done, how you've sailed through COVID. So exciting. And I know so many people that use Chief and have found their groups really helpful. Well, thank you. And I know we're at time, but for our listeners, what's the best piece of leadership advice and the worst piece you've ever received in your career? I think the good and bad advice is often the same advice. It's just how you apply it. I mean, God knows I've been given tons of advice over the years, and a lot of it's been very helpful. Probably the best advice was also the worst advice, which was sometimes just shut the fuck up, Mm. which at certain times was very helpful. And at other times, actually, there were times I should have spoken up more. Yeah, I feel like any hard and fast rule or advice or anything that you take to the extreme one way or the other makes it either the worst advice because you took it too far to the extreme 
or it's the best advice because it allows you to just shape an edge a little bit at times. So I totally understand that. Yeah. And some advice is perfect for the situation at hand and doesn't work for other situations. Yeah, totally. There's a lot to be said for just taking a breath and making a decision. And if it's the wrong decision, making another decision, which will probably more likely be the right decision. I'm just nervous because now Carolyn has ammunition to be like, Lindsay, (laughs) in the wise words of Joanna Coles, shut the fuck up. (laughs) It's true. I'm going to use it. I'm going to do it. I know you are. I know you are. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. That was Joanna Coles. No title necessary. I've always been so fascinated by her career, and I'm really glad we got a chance to speak with her. I loved that when she was talking about all her career achievements and pivots that she mentioned she didn't do them on her own. It's actually really refreshing to hear someone talk about their rise by mentoring and crediting the people who partnered with them or the people who gave them the chance. I also think Joanna's story was a great message that an amazing career doesn't have to be a straight line. She began by wanting to be and becoming a foreign correspondent, which is a highly sought after position, but she voluntarily walked away to make room for another life decision, having children. And that's when she began her meteoric rise in magazines. I think it's so important to emphasize two different things here. The first is that you can change your mind and still end up with an even more fantastic career than the one you first started off thinking about. But then two, when you visualize what your future looks like, it's really important to think about having a full life. And that doesn't necessarily mean having children, but your career journey can and should make room for other pursuits and priorities. Is this your way of telling me that you're pursuing other passions beyond chief, Linz? <laughs> uh, with everything happening in my life, it's safe to say not yet. Plus, <laughs> Cece. You know Chief is still my biggest passion, and you are the big reason why I love what we're building. (laughs) Me too, Linz. Well, see you all in season three, and hope that all of our listeners use this conversation to start dreaming of what else they can add to their career journeys in the meantime. That's all for this episode of The New Rules of Business by Chief. Don't miss out on all of our Chief content. You can get more podcast episodes by following this show on your favorite podcast app. And if you're more of a social media person, find us and join the conversation on LinkedIn. But if you're ready to up the ante, and if you're thinking about becoming a member of the Chief Network, head to our website, chief.com, where you can apply. As a member, you'll be connected with the most powerful network of executive women across the country. Thanks, Sharon Yee, Courtney Conley, Katrina Conanan-Rial, Blaine Edens at Chief, and to our production team, Pod People, Rachel King, Matt Sav, Amy Machado, Gina Moravec, Hannah Pedersen, Madison Lesby, and Michael Aquino. Our music is by Colin Hatch. I'm Carolyn Childers. I'm Lindsay Kaplan. Thanks for listening.